do? Name them and rebuke them and make sure you really go fight with them and you give Satan a piece of your mind? No. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God. How do I fight spiritual warfare? Righteousness, faith, the gospel, salvation, drawing near to God, right? And he'll draw near to me and Satan will flee. That's how we do it. That's the charge. And so, yes, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't have the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal, uh, Second Corinthians tells us. But they are mighty in God for tearing down strongholds and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It can be torn down. Everything that opposes God, torn down. Everything that would exalt itself over the gospel of Jesus Christ can be torn down. And the question is, will we be people that engage in this kind of conflict and live this kind of lifestyle of, of walking in the armor of God? Or will we be people who lazy river our way through life? Let me just float and let go where the current takes me. Let me tell you where the current takes you. The God of this present age works among the sons of disobedience. And the lazy river takes you. Towards destruction. It takes you towards the sway of the evil one. It never takes you back to God. Okay. You still with me? I haven't seen anybody run out yet. Y'all are so polite. So let's look at Daniel chapter 10 and, and go from there. All right. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies. No meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. And on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz and around his waist. And his body was like barrel, and his face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming fires, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appeared, and I heard, as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief priests, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for this vision is for days yet to come. Now, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face to the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of men touched my lips. And then I opened my mouth and I spoke and I said to him who stood before me, Oh, my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. 
How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. And again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly loved. Fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And I said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And then he said, do you know why I have come? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius, the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Let's pray. So, Father, so much going on. And we need your spirit, the spirit of truth, to give us the insight of truth. God, we need your spirit to reveal your heart, to reveal your mind, to reveal your plan. We need your spirit to take your word and make it alive so it's not dead to us. So that this isn't a lifeless experience to us that we just go through as we get through the, to, back to the rest of our life that matters. God, that this is real and rich and meaningful and powerful and wonderful. God, would you do that in us? God, we pray that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So angelic conflict influ- influences human events. Angelic conflict influences human events. Let's look at the first step here. Encounters with God should undo us. And maybe I should say encounters with God sometimes should undo us. Right? Because I think what we've done is we've reduced encountering God to, I got goosebumps when we sang today. Or we've reduced encounters with God to, I get these warm, fuzzy feelings or this emotional movement in my heart uh, during worship. And that's what we have equated to encountering God. And Praise God he does that, right? Praise God that he does come. Praise God that we do experience warmth or strengthening or help as we gather. That is an amazing thing. But there's this whole big chunk of biblical example. It's the Isaiah kind of experience. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. He was in the temple. And it devastated Isaiah, right? Woe is me, Cursed am I, undone am I, destroyed am I, because I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. That's not the encounter we're praying for. When was the last time God wrecked your heart over your sin? When was the last time God wrecked my heart over my spiritual apathy? When was the last time God wrecked me that I just didn't care that much? When was the last time God wrecked me over my idleness and my laziness? When was the last time God wrecked me over the fact that my heart does not rejoice in the Lord and does not enjoy gathering under His Word and does not have a longing or desiring for Him? You see, maybe that's the encounter we all need to seek at this point. Maybe that's the brokenness we need to move us to where God wants us. And I believe that's exactly one of the things that happens Here in the book of Daniel. So quick overview. Verse 1 is this third person introduction to, meaning, right, he, right, versus me. This this introduction to what's about to happen. And look what's in there. It's a word from God. It's a true word from God. And it's an accurately understood word from God. Daniel understood and knew what he's saying. And so it's from God. It's true. And it's completely understood, right? It's an accurate word from God. What is it about? 
It concerns a great conflict that is coming. Right? And so from there, you see Daniel encountering this figure in a linen robe, and the encounter is so overwhelming that he puts his face in the dirt and passes out. And it takes an angel touching him three times and speaking to him an additional time before he can even regain enough coherency to have a conversation with the angel. While at the same time, these little interactions between the angel and Daniel are interactions that speak about a word that's being revealed. But more than that, what happens in these interactions? I got withstood by the prince of Persia. What is that about? And, and, and it might be just a passing verse, but then you get the final interaction. And before he's like, I'm going to tell you about the word of truth, but you've got to understand, I'm about to go back to fight the prince of Persia. Okay, now he's trying to tell us something. And so that's what we see playing out in the text. Let's, let's jump in. In the first and third year of, of Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel has vision one and vision two. In the first and third year of Cyrus, Daniel has prayer, 70-week prophecy, and here, vision three, right? And so there's this parallelism of accounts from Babylon to, to Persia as we're transitioning uh, in that. And something happens when we meet Daniel at this point. Daniel is in mourning. Right? He's in mourning that has led him, this grief has led him into a semi-fast. Now, Daniel's 85 years old, and this is a three-week period. So is it a semi-fast for, for, for health purposes? You know, he can't quite, quite keep it up the way he, he once would have. We don't know, but it's this semi-fast where he will eat no delicacies. It's like a bread and water diet, bare essentials to stay alive. And he's not even going to groom himself in a way that would allow him to mix with polite company. So he leaves the capital, goes out to the Tigris River, and he lets himself go as an expression of his mourning, and he fasts in a limited way as an expression of his mourning. Do you know something that's interesting about it? happens in the first month of the Jewish calendar? Passover happens in the first month of the Jewish calendar. The Feast of Unleavened Bread happens in the first month of the Jewish calendar. The, the, the biggest event in all of the Old Testament when it comes to redemption is the exodus from Egypt. It's the Passover that commemorates and celebrates that. So this should be a time of celebration. We're back in the land. The exile is ended. This should be a time of celebration. Redemption uh, and, and restoration is happening. But instead, what do we find Daniel doing instead of celebrating? We find him mourning. Why is he mourning? Right, Second Chronicles 36, uh, Cyrus gives the decree, go back and rebuild. Ezra 1, God has commanded me and decreed of me, Cyrus, the, the lost pagan Cyrus, to, to rebuild his temple and to return his people from exile. Two years later, which is roughly this time frame, Ezra chapter 3, they begin rebuilding the temple. Right? This is, it's starting to happen and Daniel's like, yes, it's going on. I'm sure he's getting progress reports. He can't make it back. He's 85 years old. This is a tough trip. Right? There's no planes. And so he's like, yes, it's happening. The temple is being built. Finally, I'm ready to go in peace now. And then Ezra chapter 4 makes its way back to Daniel. And you know what happens in Ezra chapter 4? Massive opposition arises in the area of Israel. And the work on the temple completely stops. And the rest of the book of Ezra is opposition. And the people go back to their, you know, their, their uh, distracted spiritual ways. They get lazy in their spiritual lives again. And so Daniel's lived his life. He's seeing this unfold. And you've been there too, right? Like, if I can just get through this. And, and you get through this problem. You get through this season. And you finally feel like I can catch my breath again. And then that gut punch of the next thing happens. You're like, I just wasn't ready for one more thing. 
And I think that's what's happening to Daniel. So he mourns, and his mourning is expressed in fasting. So I would just encourage you before we go on, is fasting one of your spiritual disciplines? Fasting to say, God, I long for you. Maybe you've tasted and you want to taste more. Fast. Maybe you haven't tasted in a real long time. Fast, because it says, I want you. Maybe fasting can be used at a time of like tremendous um, events in your life, grief in your life, problems in your life, falling apart in your life. And fasting is this way to seek God and anchor yourself in the middle of it. Fast. Maybe you see great things. Maybe the ruins of last week that were identified would lead to fasting in this week. I would just commend that to you as a part of your spiritual. Daniel does as he mourns and he fasts. And then look what happens in the middle of his fast. Again, the same words from chapter, from chapter 9. As soon as you prayed, Daniel, a word was sent. Right? But look how the angel identifies, and he does it twice. Man greatly loved. Man greatly loved. Uh, we'll get there in a second. But, but the first thing that we see is from this morning and this fasting, he's sent there, this, this figure is sent there. And who is this figure? Or what is this figure? He's clothed in linen. He has this gold, uh, fine gold belt around his, around his waist. His, eye, his face is like lightning going off and his eyes like burning flames of fire. His, his legs and his body are like bronze, like this molten gleaming metal, uh, fiery metal. And then when he speaks, it's like a multitude. Who could this person be? Well, we've talked about it over the last several weeks. Revelation and Daniel go hand in hand, right? So let me introduce you to somebody in, in Revelation chapter 1, and, and you just tell me, uh, before I go into it, who you think this could be. Then I turned, John talking, and I saw the voice that was speaking to me, and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstand, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool and like snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet of burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars. And then in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So what I'm going to say, if that's a description of Jesus, which it is, that Daniel is encountering as he looks not at the tigers but above the tigers, he is encountering the pre-incarnate Messiah, the pre-incarnate Jesus. And he's having this encounter like a dead man, just like John fell on his face, like a dead man, just like Ezekiel when he encountered it, fell like a dead man. He is wrecked by seeing a vision of Messiah. He is undone by it. It's so terrifying that his companions don't even see it. They just feel a sense of it, and they run and hide trembling. And so you have these parallel experiences between Daniel and John, and you have very similar um, descriptions between the two. And so Daniel has encountered Jesus, and it wrecks an 85-year-old godly dude. And the rest of the passage is going to be about remaking and re-strengthening an 85-year-old godly guy. How much more do I need to be wrecked and remade, wrecked and remade, wrecked and remade, so that my strength is the strengthening of Jesus in my life, and it's not me and it's not mine. And so that's what happens as Daniel encounters him. And so what I would just encourage you of is in all of our familiarity with God, don't lose the awe. Don't lose the trembling. Don't lose the uneasiness. Don't lose the reverence. 
Don't ever get to a place where you, you don't open your heart to be ruined and remade. Don't ever lose that. And so an encounter with God sometimes should undo us. Secondly, there is demonic resistance to, the work of, uh, to God's work in the lives of his people. There is demonic resistance to God's work in the lives of his people. Now, I know as soon as I say demonic, you're like, oh, God, whatever, okay. That's fine. Here's, here's something I was thinking about, trying to just encapsulate this a little bit. So Jesus, when he's describing Satan, and, you know, Satan wants to do the exact opposite of God. They're polar opposites of each other. So Satan, uh, Jesus, when he's describing Satan, says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Right? That Satan wants to rob life, rob vitality, rob flourishing. Satan wants to take from people. He wants to kill. He wants to degrade humanity. He wants to remove the dignity of humanity. He wants to destroy the image of God because he can't destroy God. This is the next closest thing. So if he can ruin your life, if he can dehumanize you as a person or a group of people, if he can, if he can kill you and have the ravages of war all over this planet, he loves burning the thing down and destroying dismantling, decay, ruins, rubbish. That's what he loves. Hatred, loves it. Division, loves it. Anger, loves it. This is what Satan's up to. Which means God's up to the opposite. God can thrive. He comes to humanize people who have been dehumanized. He comes to install the dignity that is higher than dignity that any person can give you. He comes to give dignity to humanity and give life to humanity. And so where you find dignity and you find humanizing and you find life, you're finding the work of God. And he comes to build or rebuild what is broken, what is torn down, what is in rubble in your lives or in the world or in culture. That's what he's up to. So if that's what he's up to and that's what Satan's up to, i got a question for you. Which kingdom... Are you building with your life? Are you building a kingdom of hatred, division, dehumanization, the removal of dignity? Are you building a, 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 a kingdom that takes and takes and takes and consumes on self and is obsessed with self and promotes self? Are you building a kingdom that is about spreading life and spreading joy and spreading hope and spreading dignity and spreading humanity and spreading unity and spreading love and spreading peace? Which kingdom are you giving your life to build? Because it doesn't matter how good something is, if it is accomplishing the purposes of steal, kill, destroy, then it is not of God. Right? It is of God when it builds and adds and humanizes and unites and has peace. That's what God's up to. Which kingdom are you building with your life? Let's look at it as we jump into the text. And so we're, we're, we're shifting away from the man dressed in linen, I believe, into an interpreting angel who is now operating beside Daniel. And this interpreting angel, again, there will be three touches from the angel and one additional word before Daniel can be coherent enough to have a conversation. So touch one, and Daniel goes from a dead, passed out man to his hands and knees, but he's still trembling and shaking. And then the first word, he says, Daniel, you're greatly loved. He says that three times between last chapter and this one. It must be important. Why is it important? Because greatly loved by God. Daniel, it's not your godliness that identifies you. It's not that you're a Jewish person that identifies you. It is the love that God has set on you that identifies you. And because you're loved by God as your identity, God hears your prayers. Because you're loved by God as your identity, a word of answer has been sent to you. Because you are loved by God, I'm here. 
You didn't earn this. You didn't deserve this with your godliness. Instead, God set his affections on you so greatly that he delights to hear you and he delights to send me to you and he delights to answer what's going on. Did you know that you are greatly loved by God? That's your identity? You're loved by God. The Father delights to hear from you. You're loved by God. The Father delights to answer you, even if it's not the way you would have answered it. You're loved by God. The Father delights to be on your side. And if he gave you a son, how will he not freely give you all things with that? The Father loves you and he delights to accept you. He delights to adopt, uh, adopt you into his family, not because you deserve it or because you're in it, but because he set his love on you. And that is the defining feature of who you are. So what are you allowing to define you? Is it the love God has for you because he set it on you? Or is it something else or the voice of someone else? Daniel, you're greatly loved. Now stand up. And Daniel stands up, but he's still shaking and he's still wobbling. And then you get this verse. And when I read this, like, I got to preach this. I'm like, okay, so the prince, I was sent and the prince of Persia withstood me for 21 days. I was on my way and then I got in a fight on the way. So... Who is the prince of Persia? So how do we know it's demonic first is where I'd start. So Michael, is, Michael came to help. We know Michael is the archangel Michael, the highest angel in heaven. And in the same line, Michael is a chief prince. So if Michael the angel is a chief prince, then the prince of Persia must be an angelic spirit also. Since he's bad and opposing God, it's an evil one, meaning a demon. So we have a demonic spirit, a demonic prince, whose focused activity is where? Within Persia. Of course it is. This is the, the key empire of the time. This is where all of the world events stem out of is Persia. So of course there is this operating demonic uh, influence over decisions and sway, trying to fight everything that might happen right here at this moment, because it's a key redemptive moment. God's people are returning to the land. The temple is being rebuilt. It's a key redemptive moment, and it's the key empire of the time. And so you would expect, and decisions of, of major human events and minor ones, you'd expect them to be right here, and this would be the battle line, wouldn't you? You would almost expect, when Jesus is going the night before the cross to pray, that that would be a precise moment in which temptation might occur. Right? You'd expect these big moments to be times of conflict, and it's a big moment. And so you have what we would say is probably Gabriel from chapter 9, who's interacting with Daniel now, who's fighting with this demon who is, who is there. And in the middle of that, you have Michael show up on the scene to help out. Now, who is, who is Michael? Well, in Daniel chapter 12 and in verse 21, Michael is the angel assigned to Israel. So it's especially at a moment of key redemptive history, a moment where the Persian Empire is going to affect the lives of Jewish people. That is the moment you expect conflict to be happening. And that is when Michael, the, the highest angel assigned to Israel, shows up on the scene. You know, Michael gets in a fight with Satan. And we know this because of Jude chapter 9. They're contending over the body of Moses. Don't ask me why. Different sermon, different day. They're contending over the body of Moses, but what I want you to see is this. But even Michael, the highest angel in all of angeldom, refuses to revile Satan with his words and instead says, the Lord rebuke you. Like, that's this insight 
And so if you think Satan cares much, if you have words with him, which I would encourage you not to do, or you can throw jokes about him, or you can, you can, you know, say things about making him leave, then if the archangel Michael doesn't do that, but instead invokes the Lord, I would just encourage you, you probably don't have much to offer to that kind of battle. Why don't you just draw near to Jesus and let Jesus take care of it? Why don't you just let the Lord rebuke? And so he's the guy that contends over the body of Moses. And then in Revelation 12, 7 through 9, if you want to mark that down, Revelation 12, 7 through 9 is where we get this understanding. Michael leads the host of heaven against Satan and his angels. Let me just read it for you. Now there arose in heaven... A war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This is the Michael we're meeting. And so what does it mean that they withstood? It means that something was happening between uh, Gabriel and Michael and, and this, this demon of Persia and his forces. Something was happening at this moment of conflict where there was this fight over the sway and influence of what was going to happen in the Persian Empire at this key moment. There's some kind of collision and conflict happening. And so this collision and conflict, why would it be taking place now? Because of the rebuilding. Why would it be taking place now? Let's oppose the rebuilding at every phase. Let's, let's be a spirit at work among the sons of disobedience to make sure nothing goes easy. Let's oppose the work of God. And that is exactly what happens in, this, in these conflicts that, that happen. And so again, not a ton of information, more than that, that we get. We just get enough information to know that there is this cosmic war going on that has real effects on Persia, on Israel, and on us. And we, that, that's what we know about it. And that's what we know is happening here. And so a couple of takeaways. Um, oh, by the way, he gets there and he says, this vision is about the latter times. It's about the end times. And so we'll be talking about that, that next week. And so, or two weeks from now. Two takeaways I want you to see. The first one is that there is supernatural influences in play over your life, your home, cultures, governments, and systems. There are spiritual influences that are in play uh, over governments, cultures, and systems, right? And so there's spiritual influences in play, and your sin is your sin. So do not dare say, like, the devil made you do it, right? The devil made me do it, right? That's what you're saying here because there's all this satanic influence in the world, influencing cultures. No, your sin nature made you do it. You love you. You love what makes you comfortable. You love what sin offers you in satisfaction and pleasure in life. You love sin. So you sin, right? And so this is Chris trying to work this out in his mind in a way that I can try to help communicate it. I love my sin. You love your sin. A bunch of people get together and we have certain flavors of sin that mark and define the cultures we live in. And we have certain flavors of grace and life that mark the cultures we live in. Every culture has grace and has sin. So what I would say that the, the spiritual war is over is that the, the, the satanic forces want to take and accelerate, take it farther, take it faster, and make it more intense, the sin that is accumulated in people. So here's an example. I was just trying to think of examples to, so you don't think I'm completely crazy. And if you do, at least it's with good cause. So in the 60s, there's something called the sexual revolution, right? That happens in the, in, in the 60s. Lust is not new to humanity from the beginning. 
Like read the pages of your Bible, read the pages of history, and they are spotted with uh, that type of sin being very prevalent. What happened differently in the 60s than just accumulated human choices of lust and, and sin? You have a complete revelation, uh, a revolution where it is free love. It is unrestrained, unchecked, and it splinters into areas of divorce, areas of same sexuality, areas of transsexuality. It, it splinters into this massive thing beyond just humans desiring other humans, right? And so that, I would say, is one of the examples of like natural human proclivity built into a culture hit the gas pedal with spiritual warfare so that it intensifies and gets crazy beyond, like, what's real. Here's another example. Again, send your messages to Micah. There's a little bitty nation in the world that, you know, if you were talking about, like, I don't know, 14 million people anywhere else, you'd be like, yeah, it's kind of an irrelevant little something. We have 300 and something million people in America. China has, like, over a billion And we're talking about 14 million little people, and yet somehow there is absolute global hate and condemnation over the Jewish people. Like over the last couple of weeks, there's there's leaders in our country and there's big segments of people that are going around beating up Jewish people. Because they have somehow seen that since the Jewish people got bombed and bombed back, that they're evil and deserve to be punished. And somehow it is their fault that they got shot at. That's not rational, logical, or normal. That is spiritual and deception working itself out among a people. Like, why should we even care to some degree, much less have worldwide concern about it? Because there is a spiritual force at work and anti-God's people. And by the way, your heritage comes from them, and we should be for them, and God's purposes aren't done with them yet. And so, like... The fact that there can be this, not just a couple of people don't like them, but worldwide. Something's weird about that other than normal, natural hatred of people between people. So that's a couple of examples. It's hard because, like, how do you distinguish human sin from spiritual warfare? I don't know. But I'm just trying to give you some examples of, like, where I think, and this is Chris working it out, right? Because the scripture doesn't go as, as far into it. I think the demonic forces are trying to influence human affairs by hitting the gas pedal on their depravity so that it goes further, wilder, faster, crazier than we possibly would have done if it were just us and our depravity in play. Does that make sense? Okay. Here we go. First thing, supernatural influences are play. You're responsible for your sin. What's the second thing? You are more loved than you can possibly imagine. You are more loved by God than you can possibly imagine. Imagine, and it has nothing to do with what you deserve, nothing to do with how you perform or measure up, everything to do with the finished work of Jesus. And so I would invite you to turn from the identity that has been placed over your life by other people, by parents, by yourself, or by the mirror. And if that's not true of your life yet, you know what I would invite you to do? I would invite you to look your sin straight in the face and allow the fullness of the conviction of the Holy Spirit to to break over your life. Because at the other side of that, you know what you'll see? is the Holy Spirit revealing Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, God in human flesh, living a sinless life on your behalf, who died on a cross for your sins and all of the sins of the world and was buried and walked out of a tomb three days later and sent His Holy Spirit to offer you the life that comes from Him. And if you'll turn from your sin and you'll put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, He'll save you and He will write over you loved, write over you adopted, write over you family forever. And that will be how you're defined. There's one more step. It doesn't add a ton, so, so we don't have to do it. We can do it pretty quickly. Uh, but I do want you to see this last piece in which um, 
Not only is there the spiritual warfare, but the conflict in the spiritual and earthly realms will continue to the end. The conflict in the spiritual and earthly realms will continue to the end. It's probably not a big shock to you. Uh, Amy and I will sit around, we'll have this conversation, and, and since we've had it enough, we now have it with other people who go through challenges. You know, like we get into this mentality where it's like, God, it's a super busy season if I just get through this season. Man, what a crazy time. Wow, a lot of changes and challenges. When we just get through the changes and challenges, then, right? Or there's a problem with the kids or there's a problem at church. When we just get through the problem, then everything will be peaceful. Then everything will be okay. Then everything will calm down. Then everything will be normal. And you know what we found? It never is normal. It never calms down. It's never just smooth sailing. Yes, there's more intense and less intense, but it never just goes away. And so we've encouraged people because we have to find this. We've had to go through this so many times on our own. Like it never gets just easy. It never gets just no problems. It never gets just no stress. So what do we do? How do you find faithfulness to God right in the middle of the challenge, not once the challenge is over? Right? How do you walk with God faithfully? How do you let God build perseverance and encouragement uh, and endurance into you right now, not once it's over? And that's what we want to help people with versus this mentality of let me just get through it. All right? And so here, there will be an end at the end of this life. When Jesus comes back, it all ends forever. But until then, there will always be the seasons and the stresses and the challenges and the normals and the new normals. And the new, new normals. And the maskless normals. And the double mask normals. And everything in between. Right? And so the third step, in God touches, or the angel touches him a second time. And he's able to, as he stands up, he's slumped and he's mute. And so he touches him another time and he's able to speak only enough to say, I can't catch my breath. I have no strength. I can't talk to you. This vision has pained me to the level I can't keep going. And so he touches him again and when he touches him again listen to what he says i think this is awesome you're greatly loved identity we just talked about it fear not be at peace right be made whole find your peace in god and then be strong and create of good courage think about that in your life it's in god not the stuff going on around you why so that you can face with courage and boldness the world that you walk into i'm loved by god my peace is in God and his presence, so I walk into the world with boldness and courage, unswayed by it, unwrecked by it. And so finally Daniel is strengthened, and he's able to have a conversation. And what's the first thing the angel asks him? Do you know why I'm here? Do you see this? Like, he has been incoherent to this moment, and so he's like, you know I'm here. And then the only addition to what we've, what we've already talked about, if you see it there, is I've got to go back and fight with the prince of Persia. But I'm going to tell you the message that was inscribed in the word of truth. But then look what he says. I'm going to go back and fight with the prince of Persia. And when I'm done with the prince of Persia, what's going to happen? The prince of Greece is going to show up. We beat Persia. Let's cheer for about 10 seconds. Oh, Alexander the Great storming across the world, conquering with iron and fire and destruction. Okay, let's get back in the conflict. Let's get back in the battle. I don't want to say it too nicely. I'm saying this about Chris and us, right? I don't know that there's been many more warless generation of Christians than us. 
We're comfortable. It's easy. We're distracted. We're apathetic. We have names for the fundamentalist legalists who take godliness too seriously. And yes, there are legalists and fundamentalists that are completely obnoxious and should have names called at them. In love. But the pursuit of godliness has fallen out of favor. And, and somehow it's more spiritual for your warfare to be your melody. My weapon is a melody. And that's more spiritual than applying yourself to godliness. Pursuing uh, righteousness. Having the helmet of salvation. Walking with the shield of faith. is more important than having the waist belt of truth where the word of God is saturating your life. All that stuff. No, no that's, too, that's too legalistic. Right? We're warless Christians, and, and you know what I think? We see the massive implications of warless Christianity on the lost world. Where's our impact? Where's our godliness? Where's our holiness? Where's our concern for truth? Where is our fighting for the souls of our friends and our neighbors? Where's our showing up to worship as a part of what is necessary to go wage the warfare outside of worship? Where is it? I don't need it that much this week. I think I'm good. All I'm going to do is sit on my phone anyways. Chris, us, we're warless Christians who have the impact of peacetime people while the spiritual world is raging in conflict all around us, raging for you, raging for your kids, raging for your marriage, raging for the church, raging for the community you're a part of, and raging for the culture that you're immersed in. Now, don't get me wrong. You will get on Instagram and rant about culture, or you will tweet about culture, But you know what you have the least amount of impact on in your whole life? American culture. You know what you have the most amount of impact on? Your personal walk with God. Your family, your kids, your home. You have a direct implication on the people that you worship with or go to Sunday school with or in microgroups. You have a direct influence over their lives. How about we rant to God in prayer about a work of the Spirit in our lives, our homes, our families, and our groups, and let the ranting about culture happen somewhere else? Instead of war, being warless Christians, we, join the, we fight the good fight of faith because there is a crown laid up in heaven for us. Will we develop a wartime mentality and a wartime lifestyle because there's coming a time of rest, and it's going to be eternal rest for you and eternal rest for me. There's going to be eternal judgment and consequence for all those wonderful, good, lovely people that you didn't want to offend and I didn't want to offend that I walked by every single day of my life. And it will be eternal torment for them. But don't worry, I was more comfortable. I found a way to medicate that out of my heart so that it didn't burden me. A few practical things, We'll, we'll wrap up from there. How do you need to expand or adjust your understanding of the spiritual realm? How do you need to expand or adjust your understanding of the spiritual realm? Right? That there is a real and a literal angelic and demonic presence in the world that has real influences on humanity. Do you need to adjust to that? Do you need to adjust away from, I can't measure it, it's not scientific, I can't observe it, I can only have implied evidence about it, that's why it's so hard for me to kind of to communicate it and even understand it myself. And so it must not be that big a deal or that real. Maybe you need to understand. No, it's real. It's real. Is that something that needs to expand or adjust in in your life? But what I want you to understand about the spiritual realm is they want to own you. They want to own your worldview. 
They want to own your choices. They want to own your family. They want to own this church. They want to own everything and bring it into stolen, destroyed, dehumanized destruction. And they won't be happy till it's tattered and ruined and destroyed. But there's a God who builds. Which, which kingdom will you build with your life? The second thing, how can you incorporate fasting into your spiritual habits? Maybe it's just one meal a week, one meal every couple of weeks. And during that meal time that you would have had, there's an intensified spiritual seeking and, and looking at God in your life. Maybe you'd want to take one day a month instead. And at one day a month, you don't eat that day. And you spend increased times in prayer throughout that day. And, and spiritually, there's a more uh, intentional seeking in your life. Maybe it's events. Maybe there's some pretty big things going on in your life, your marriage, your home, whatever. There's big stuff going on. And maybe it would be a great time for that big stuff to lead you to fasting and seeking the Father. But how might fasting be, needed to be added to your spiritual habits? And then the last one. How can you remind yourself of your God-defined identity? How can you remind yourself of your God-defined identity? You see, you've got to have a foundation to start from before you can be courageous in the world. Before you can join the combat like a good soldier who wants to please the one who enlisted him. And that foundation is, God defines who I am, not me, not others. Right? And so, how do you need to remind yourself of that? Do you open up the book most days of the week? Do you, do you meditate and soak in it until something comes out of it and study it until something comes out of it? Or do you, do you not open it? Or do you just read through it casually and move on? I encourage you, soak in it until something happens, something shows up. Are you in community where they'll help listen to the things you say and speak the gospel back into it and encourage and life back into it? They won't let you say what is not true about you. Do you have that kind of community? Put yourself in the community with other believers that can speak the gospel and, and have access to your life and that you can also speak the gospel to them. Are you part of worship? Right? We are declaring great truths about God gathered together, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Are you there? These are the places and more where God speaks his identity over your life for you to live and root in so that you can go face the world with boldness and courage as a wartime Christian, not a warless Christian. And so spiritual stuff is not just the stuff of movies. It's not just the stuff for you to get creeped out at so you have to sleep with the lights on at night. It's real deal and it's so much more terrifying than you can imagine. Like if God let you see it, you'd go catatonic. So would I. But it's real and it's waging all around you. Will you join in, take up the whole armor of God, or will you continue to sit it out? Let's pray. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we humble ourselves and seek your face and long for more of you. And, God, we're convicted because we don't want more of you. Father, would you awaken an appetite, a yearning, a desire within us for you. All of you, more of you, God, to have Jesus formed in us, to have your presence with it, which is the fullness of joy, to find our joy in you, Father. Father, would you open our eyes to this realm that is warring around us, warring for us, and would you let us fight the good fight of faith? Would you call us back to the conflict as good soldiers because we have such a good commander who's enlisted us by his blood? Father, would you call us back? Would you wake us up? Would you get us engaged? We pray for that in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Our love to death by Jesus Christ. Literally love to death. 
Have you ever faced your sin? And not turn to a church, not turn to a religion, not turn to Baptist. Turn to Jesus Christ as the one who died and rose again. Have you ever turned and put your faith in Jesus alone to save you? If not, let's pray together. Fill out the white sheet in your bulletin. Give it to somebody on the way out. Let us talk to you more about that. But maybe as you think about the invitation, think about how you should respond. You see some of the, the, the ruin. You see some of the effects. You see it in your own spiritual life. You see it in your kids. You see it in your home. You see it in the apathy. And you want to just come and put that before the Father. God, would you work for that? And would you war for that again? How do you need to respond? How do you need to respond to truths like this? Let's stand and sing together. And you respond how the Lord is leading you. So, Father, as the war for our hearts rages and we yearn for the desires of the flesh, would you give us victory in your spirit for holiness and righteousness and purity and repentance? As the war for our own heart wages, would you give us victory by the power of your spirit in the name of your son, Jesus? Because we're loved by you with such an amazing love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before we leave, we got one exciting piece of business to attend to. This is Tom Wu, tennis instructor extraordinaire to my uh, daughter Lydia. I uh, got to know him as, as a friend over these past couple weeks. Pretty excited about that. He's gone through our new members class, and uh, I think in record time for Fletcher, has gone through new members class and jo- uh, come forward to join. And so if you would welcome him into the family of faith, let's celebrate that together. Um, so we're going to head out that way. Make sure you uh, stop by and welcome Tom either this week or, or in the coming weeks to, to the Fletcher family.